Hey, how's everybody doing? Good, good, awesome. I am really excited to share with you this morning. Uh, as John mentioned last week, so we, we just have a few weeks worth of messages that won't be part of a series. Uh, they're just kind of one-off uh, things that are on our heart that we're thinking about. And so uh, I didn't prepare anything this morning. I don't have any notes. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to stand up here and I'm just going to rant like those videos that we all like so much on Facebook. I just, I didn't take any time or anything like that. Oh no, I'm completely kidding. I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't do that because you all mean too much to me. Um, so this week, I'm going to be talking about a different kind of prayer and fasting. And so we're going to spend some time, we're going to pick apart what do I mean by a different kind of prayer and fasting. We're going to talk about the word intercession a lot this morning. And so I just want to point out um, I hope you all have your bingo cards ready. Don't hear what I'm not saying, right? We're just going to start off with one of those. I'm not saying that the kind of intercession that you're doing right now isn't intercession. What I'm going to do is I'm going to present to you a different thought about how that works. I'm going to present to you a different angle on the word intercession, and we're going to start to think differently about some of these things. So the whole world is churning, right? We are in chaos. And this past week, I went back and I listened to a conference that our staff attended in Urbana, Illinois, back in February. So if you can remember February, that was five months ago, and coronavirus was just a whisper about something that was happening in another part of the world, and we were, we were in this conference with thousands of people in the same room. It was crazy cool, right? And we, like, we traveled as a group. There were 12 of us staying in a house together. It was just amazing. You guys, you have no idea. We went to restaurants. Uh, it was sweet. So at this conference, the leader of the School of Kingdom Ministry, which we run here uh, on Sunday nights, Putty Putman, he shared during the first session. What he shared with us was that he had asked God for a word for the year. So he had been praying in, in January and, and probably December, right ahead of that, getting ready for this conference. He's asking God for a word for the year. So God, what, what's one word that prophetically kind of captures uh, what's happening in 2020? And the word that he felt like uh, he got from the Lord was chaos. Well, I would say he nailed it, right? I would say he absolutely nailed it because when he presented it to us, he was like, I don't know if this is right. You know, I'm just going to submit this to you guys and you can, well, I'm, I'm here to say he nailed it. So what I want to do is I want to talk to, our, talk to you about our response to that this morning. I want to talk to you about our response to that chaos. What does that look like? Uh, and I'm just going to warn you, you know, I'm going there in this message. I'm going to talk about some of the radioactive stuff that makes us hurl insults at each other online. And uh, some of you might feel really angry about some of the things that I say this morning. And that's okay. I just ask that, you know, please don't throw anything heavy at me. Um, I'd love to take you to coffee. And some of you might feel like some of the things that I say this morning, your, your perspective is, uh, is really vindicated. You know, you might want to cheer, and you might want to shout amen. And I just ask um, that, you, that you wouldn't. And the reason is there aren't two sides. There aren't two sides in the kingdom, right? The, I want you to be attentive to how you feel as I say some of these things and ask the Holy Spirit to come in and deal with that feeling when it comes up and search you for what's going on inside of you and why am I feeling this way. Ask God those questions instead of throwing something at me or shouting amen. That's a joke. I really don't think any of you guys would throw anything at me. But we have a responsibility to love one another, to relate from a place of love, and so I want that to be the emphasis, okay? And so before we go any further, I'm just going to pray. So Jesus, we just invite you in this place this morning that your words would be spoken. Holy Spirit, come and fill me up. I need your wisdom. I need your insight. I just pray for grace in this place for one another. I pray for peace in this place for peace in the city of Oxford, for peace in America, that you would come, Lord, and you would meet us, that you would meet us in this moment in history and you would show your church what it looks like to be your people in this moment in time. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, 
Uh, the message is titled A Different Kind of Prayer and Fasting because honestly I think uh, we as Christians think that we have a really good understanding uh, of what it means to pray and fast. And, and I think we do. I, I want to commend you all for that because this group of people in this room and on this stream that are listening to me this morning, we get what it means to be in the place of intercession for what we care about. We get what it means to pray and fast when God moves our heart towards something. And so I want to commend you for that. Uh, I'm going to be drawing on two key passages this morning. So if you want to bookmark those in your devices, uh, the first one is going to be Hebrews 7.20 until I stop. And then the second one is going to be Isaiah, the first 12 verses of Isaiah 58. So before we dive in, I just kind of want to give you like the 30,000 foot view of what's happening uh, in these passages and why they're relevant to the culture today. So the first one, uh, Hebrews 7, who is being written to in the book of Hebrews? Somebody say it. The Hebrews, right, exactly. You guys nailed it. That's my favorite, uh, that's my favorite thing. So yes, the Hebrews are being written to. So, so we're writing to a group of people. They're, they're Jewish people. They're living um, this, this life right by the law, or at least they're doing their best. And uh, So this is like Jewish communities, early Christian Jewish communities. And then the second passage is going to be Isaiah 58. Now, the book of Isaiah is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. I absolutely love it. Because what happens is it's written in uh, portions. So there's these different chunks of Isaiah that mean different things, right? And there's some debate about the last 10 chapters of Isaiah. Some people think that Isaiah wrote them, that the prophet Isaiah wrote them, and then they were opened up uh, hundreds of years later, and his words were read aloud to the people. Other people think that disciples of the prophet Isaiah wrote the last 10 chapters of Isaiah, and these people were kind of carrying Isaiah's teaching forward and and writing to the people of Israel so that they would understand these things. But what I want you to get is that the part of Isaiah that I'm going to read to you is actually written to you. This This is an important thing to understand about the context of the Bible. Not all of the Bible was necessarily written to you. It's for you to learn from, right? But Isaiah, the last 10 chapters of Isaiah was written to the church. It's actually a prophetic declaration to the people who, uh, as the writer says, will will follow the servant, will love the servant. And so now we know the servant is the Messiah Jesus, right? So this is actually written to us. So we're going to dive in. Um, I don't know how many people here make a regular practice of fasting, but fasting is a healthy uh, spiritual discipline for us to engage with. And there's a lot of talk about fasting in the church especially in times of difficulty, especially when we're facing something hard. You know, when, when something is going wrong in the world, we fast. And I think there's a lot of praying, fasting people right now. Uh, when we have a, desire, a, a dire circumstance in our lives, we fast for, for us personally or for our families. When we struggle to comprehend, you know, the scope of the loss of life due to abortion in America, we fast and pray for that thing. And when, we, uh, when our hearts are broken for our brothers and sisters of color uh, and we see their circumstance, we fast and we pray, right? That's the response that we have as kingdom people. And, and I can remember a time in my life uh, when I had a family member who was seriously ill for a number of months and I fasted and prayed. I, I fasted numerous times because I desperately wanted to see him get healed. This was someone that I cared deeply for. And it was a person I loved, and I didn't want to see him in pain. And so sometimes I fasted a meal, and sometimes uh, I would fast for days, and sometimes I would fast for weeks. Uh, and, and I prayed like I had never prayed before because this thing was breaking my heart, and it motivated me to enter into that place of prayer and fasting. And the worst part about it is he didn't get healed. He actually suffered a lot for a long time. And, and I asked God, why is it that my fasting didn't do anything to make this healing happen? Like, what kept my fast from working? And, and we would never say it, but a lot of us fast to get God to do something for us, right? A lot of us pray and fast to get God to do something for us. And, and it's like, you know, it's not even just limited to fasting. We try to make deals with God. We say things like, God, you know, if I give this up, will you do that? Or, you know, we fast for one thing or another, and that's fine. But 
when we do that, I think we miss God's heart for our fasting. I think we miss the point a little bit. And so I want to just explain what I mean by that a little bit. Fasting and prayer are a lifestyle, right? So when you think about uh, the the disciples try to cast the demon out of this boy, and, and Jesus comes to him and says, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. He's not saying you need to go and pray and fast and then come back and try to cast the demon out again. He's saying you're not living right. He's saying that this needs to be a lifestyle for you, and through that lifestyle comes the authority and empowerment of God on your lives. And so, you know, the purpose of fasting is not to get God to do something for us. The purpose of fasting is inward transformation that reveals more of God's heart for us and for the people living around us. That's the whole reason that we do it, is so that we can be transformed. It's not to get access to something we didn't already have access to. It's not to bend God's ear or twist his arm and get him to do something for us. It's, it's so that we can be transformed and become more and more like the person of Jesus. See, the fact is we're living by a different rule book now than people were in the Old Testament. We don't play by the same rules. We see all over the Old Testament a model for fasting that looks like people are trying to earn the presence of God. Well, now the presence of God lives inside of us as believers, right? We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is living in us. And so what's the purpose of our fasting? Because God has already come close. We don't need to beg him to come close. It's to make us more aware and more in tune with that presence, that's inside of us. There's a thing that happens that's like spiritual numbness. Have any of you ever felt spiritually numb? Like when I open the Bible, nothing's happening. When I pray, nothing's happening. When I worship, nothing's happening. Why is that? It's because we need to get more in tune with the presence of Jesus inside of us. There can be all kinds of reasons for that, but I would argue that a lifestyle of prayer and fasting leads us into uh, spiritual understanding spiritual attunement with what's going on, with what the Holy Spirit's doing. And when we're living outside of that lifestyle of prayer and fasting, it's not quite the same. We experience that spiritual numbness. That can be a reason. So why do we pray? Prayer is very much the same thing as fasting. We have a church full of praying people here, and I'm so glad about that. I have been a part of communities since I met Jesus that understood the power of prayer in so many different ways. We understand prayer being, you know, the laying on of hands or right now the reaching out of hands. Um, we understand pr- contemplative prayer, getting close to God. We understand intercessory prayer, right? There's so many different kinds of prayer that are important to us. And we're stirred to prayer because we need God's insight. We need to know what God's thinking and we need that to be deposited inside of us. We pray because we understand the finite nature of our human form. And we get that there's more out there for us than just what we can come up with in our own minds. Mike Bickle says it like this. I really like Mike Bickle's thoughts on prayer. He says this in his book, The Rewards of Fasting, which is my first book recommendation for you today. He says, prayer causes us to internalize God's word, that's Jesus, as we speak his ideas back to him. Each time we say back to God what he has declared to us, it marks our spirit illuminates our mind and tenderizes our heart. Our character is transformed. All this happens as we engage in intercession because God's words are spirit and life. God's requirement that we pray reflects his desire for intimate partnership and connection with us. Fasting and prayer are an invitation. God invites us to fast and pray because he wants us to want more of him. So he's explaining the purpose of prayer here. And did you notice that he never said that the purpose of prayer was to get God to do something? He explains to us that the purpose of a lifestyle in prayer and fasting is to be transformed by Jesus. And so we're not convincing God to do something different. He is convincing you to do something different. Did you hear that? We're not convincing God to do something different. He is convincing you to do something different when we're in the place of prayer. This brings me to our first scripture that I want to look at. So open up that Hebrews uh, chapter 7, verse 20. And here the writer of Hebrews, he's talking about Melchizedek a little bit, which is really interesting. We can talk about that another time. Uh, And he's comparing him to Jesus. And so I'm just going to go in there and I'm going to read until I get tired of it. 
So for on the one hand, it says, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. So pause for a second. What's he talking about? He's talking about the old law. He's talking about the old covenant, right? And this is strong language, especially being written to people who love this old law and love this old covenant. What, he, what is he saying? He's saying it is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That's strong language. So he continues on. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest, this one meaning Jesus, with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So what's happening here? This is, this is again, saying, hey, these, the old law and the old covenant, this was one way of understanding God. But it's insignificant in light of what Jesus has done because Jesus has rewritten the rule book. He has rewritten the way that we engage with these things. So then it goes on and it says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So that's just a really complicated way of saying, hey, they were people and they died and they needed to be replaced. Um, but he holds his priesthood permanently. So this is Jesus. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So you can probably tell where I'm going with this. There's two things here. First, we see that um, these, these priests were many in number. We understand that. So he's explaining the old temple system, right, where there would be a priest and they would serve for a time and then they would die and then they'd be replaced. But then the second thing, this is what I really want you to focus on, is that uh, we have this bit about Jesus being able to save completely those who draw near to God because he's making intercession for them. So just keep that word in mind. That's going to be really important. We're going to come back to Jesus making intercession for them. So then it continues. It says, For his, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. This is beautiful. Listen. For his own, first for his own sins, then for those of the people. So that's the way that they used to do it. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So he's saying, look, the, the whole old system, it's been, it's been upheaved. It's over. Because Jesus was the permanent sacrifice. The one sacrifice that ended the sacrificial system going around and around. God needing to you know, judge sin as it happens. And then you know, the people needing to atone for it. And this back and forth, this roller coaster that these people were living, that's over. And so it says, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is perfect forever, and he lives to make intercession for us forever. How good is that? And so it goes on, and chapter 8 goes on to quote the prophet Jeremiah regarding the law being written on the hearts of the people of God. That's a really important part. I would encourage you to go and read that on your own. Read Hebrews chapter 8 on your own. It talks about the law being written on the hearts of the people, and that was actually God's desire from the beginning that his law would be written on the hearts of his people, not on stone tablets, not on parchments that would be unrolled and read in the synagogue every once in a while, but that it would be written on the hearts of his people, that we would understand, that we would comprehend to a greater and greater measure every day, every week, every month, every year of our lives, how good the precepts of God are, how good God is. And so... I want to return to the intercession of Jesus. And I want to explore this idea that the intercession Jesus is doing, when we look at that word intercession and we understand the purpose of prayer, the intercession that Jesus is doing is intended to change us, not God. The intercession Jesus is doing is intended to change us, not God. See, the Holy Spirit has become our internal regulator. He has become the law written on our hearts. He has become uh, this, this thing that is wiring us for righteousness. He's doing that inside of you every day. And prayer and fasting gives him avenues to come in and change us. 
Those are the moments of openness that we set aside and say, Holy Spirit, come in and change me, right? And so we're inviting the Holy Spirit to come in and be the intercession of Jesus. I want to unpack that word intercession for a moment. When this passage says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us, what does that mean? When I used to read this verse, the basic understanding that I had was this, that God the Father is mean, and so our friend Jesus lives to beg his Father to have mercy on humanity, and please just don't wipe them off the face of the earth. That's the way that I used to understand this verse. But check this out. That would actually be a, I'm going to take a, get your John Richter bingo card out. That's stupid, right? That, that would actually be a silly thing to think because Jesus is God, Jesus is God, right? And he put the Father's heart for humanity on display when he literally died for us, okay? So why would it make sense that Jesus loves us and is the picture of the Father's desire for humanity, but, the, but still the Father hates us, and so they have these conflicting desires, and Jesus would need to ward off God's desires with intercession. That makes no sense. It makes no sense the word intercession itself, um, it doesn't appear in the biblical text all that often. I usually study in the ESV. I think it's in the ESV five times. Um, I, I'm not going to try to say it in the Greek because I don't think it would be helpful for anyone, but it's a two-part word. The word intercession means it's, it's a two-part word. It's like a conjunction, right? So the first part of that word means in, by, or with. So it's the same Greek word, uh, that we see when, when it says Mary was with child. That's the first part of the word intercession. Now, the second part of the word intercession means to bring forth, to obtain, or this is the really important one, to hit the mark. How many of you have ever heard sin described as missing the mark? Yeah? That that's the literal, that's the word that we, that we the Greek word, when we talk about sin, it means to miss the mark. Well, when we look at this word, that is used for the intercession of Jesus, it means literally inside of us to hit the mark. Let that sink in for a minute. So, so instead of, not instead of, but as well as, because we have this understanding of intercession, uh, and a lot of us take it to mean, you know, standing in the gap or something like that, which, yes, is, is true, but I want us to take a close look at this word because it shows us that what it really means is a kind of prayer that brings about inward or indwelling righteousness. How good is that? A kind of prayer that brings about righteousness inside of us, bringing forth the presence of God from within us. That's what it's saying when it says Jesus lives to make intercession for us. He is living to call out inside of you the righteousness that is hitting the mark. So we see that this is, it's talking about a truth being called out from inside of us. Jesus intercedes so that his sacrifice would be made alive inside of his people. He intercedes so that the power and the life and the goodness that is the cross and the resurrection would be alive inside of us. And so, you know, if we take a hard look at ourselves, we're very quick to acknowledge that none of us are perfect. We would all say that. And if you're saying you're perfect, I would love to get coffee with you. Um, but we are slow. We're slow to provide a real, honest critique of our imperfectness. Because when we talk about being imperfect, we, we tear ourselves down, right? We say all this stuff about ourselves. You know, we're worms in the dirt, and we stink, and we're the worst, and we're sinners. But that's not an honest assessment of what's actually wrong with us, Right? That's just, that's just rhetoric that makes you feel bad about yourself. We are slow to say, Holy Spirit, search me and find inside of me where I'm missing the mark. There's nothing wrong with praying for God to change a circumstance. There's nothing wrong with that. But even more than that, shouldn't we be praying for God to release his will for that circumstance through us? Instead of saying, God, would you just move your mighty right hand and, and, and wipe whatever off the face of the earth, wouldn't it be better to say, God, change me and let me be the answer to that thing? Whatever it is, change my church, change my people, change the city. 
let us be an answer to what's going wrong. So I want you to remember this graphic that Josh showed us a number of weeks ago. It represents Christ in us, acting through us. He's working in us to accomplish his purposes on the earth. And all the while, he's sanctifying us to become holier vessels of righteousness. What does that mean? That just means when he's doing this intercession, he's changing us from the inside out so that we can actually do this, so that we can do this stuff. Because we're not going to be very good at this unless we're seeking the Holy Spirit to say, God, what would you have me do to become more like you? Give me an honest critique of myself. How are you interceding for me, Jesus? That's what we've got to get in touch with. This whole idea reminded me of the quote from Corey Ten Boom. If you guys know who Corey Ten Boom is, she uh, was a Holocaust survivor and she's a brilliant writer, and her perspective uh, shaped a lot of my early years following Jesus. She's, she just was an amazing person. Seek out the writings of Corey Ten Boom. She said, We never know how God will answer our prayers, but we can expect that He will get us involved in His plan for the answer. If we are true intercessors, we must be ready to take part in God's work on behalf of the people for whom we pray. How good of a quote is that? Like, I remembered that while I was uh, preparing for this message, and I was like, holy cow, that was like, I I just need to read that, and we're done. But what I want to talk to you about, because what she's talking about is, is doing the work of being that intercession in the community, being that intercession in the nation, right? And so... Fasting and prayer, I want to talk to you for a minute. This is kind of heavy, but I want to talk to you for a minute about fasting and prayer sometimes for us being a means of displacing responsibility from ourselves. I've seen this in myself, and I've seen it in other people, and I'm not making an accusation about anyone in this room, but I would just encourage us to be asking the Holy Spirit to search us for this, to to make our motivations pure, because at times I have fasted and prayed to take responsibility off of myself for something that is going on around me. There have been circumstances that I could change by my action, by the Holy Spirit, that I could actually have Jesus living through me to change, and instead, I fasted and prayed, and I haven't done anything about it. So strap in, because this is where it's going to get really real, okay? So I want you to think back with me. In February of 2018, there was a school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. And we heard about this day after day, week after week, month after month. It was a horrible tragedy. 17 people were killed. 17 people were injured. Most of them were children. And the nation mourned and was simultaneously polarized regarding this issue of gun rights. And what I would say is that that is the story that the culture was telling. That is this human narrative, right? And and I think that God wanted to tell a different story in that time. And maybe he did some places, but I I didn't experience it personally. Because as the church, we offered, what did we offer? We offered thoughts and prayers, yeah? But something happened on a scale that I had never seen since I had been following Jesus was that... um, the thoughts and prayers of believers were rejected, right? People said, you know, we want action. We don't want your thoughts and prayers. We, we don't want that, right? Did we all hear people saying that? I heard people saying that. Anybody? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. So my point here is not a political one. So before your minds wander off, you know, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. My point is, here's my point. As Romans 8.19 says, earth waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I love that verse. I love that verse so much. Because what does it say? It doesn't say other Christians wait with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It says earth waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And so personally, I was originally offended by folks who decried thoughts and prayers. Because I thought, you know, this is, this is outrageous. I, I, I was infuriated. How could you reject thoughts and prayers? That's ridiculous, right? That's stupid. Why would you reject thoughts and prayers? But then I started to think of this, 
as a good example of earth's eager longing for the children of God to be revealed. This shouldn't be controversial. We immediately jump to responses when things like this happen. Like, well, you know, their hearts are hardened if that's not good enough. Right? I've said things like that. Have you said things like that? Or we say, well, the Bible said this would happen. It said this would happen in the last days. But the culture wouldn't say it this way. This is what I believe to be the truth. As I ask the Holy Spirit, renew my mind. What's the story you're telling? What are you saying to us in this moment? I believe that the Holy Spirit said, earth is waiting with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Unbelieving culture is dissatisfied with a church that doesn't do enough in the face of injustice. Because there's something in the back of their minds, and what I would call that is the Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh, that knows that what they're seeing is not the radical apostleship that the church is called to. They wouldn't say it that way, right? They wouldn't say it that way. They would say, we don't want your thoughts and prayers. But what's actually happening, what I believe is actually happening, is that the earth is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Unbelieving culture is not going to express that in a way that you find palatable or acceptable. They're not going to say it nice. They're not going to say it like we want to hear it. But if we ask the Holy Spirit to take away the blinders of offense and we live unoffended, maybe they used harsh language or maybe they said something mean about Christians. But can we hear the heart cry that's at the center of that? One that says, we need the church to step into her destiny. That's what the, church is, or that's what the world is saying to us. They don't know it. They don't know that that's what they're saying right? But the earth is waiting with eager longing for the sons of God to be revealed. That's how I've chosen to take that, because I can be offended by it, or I can take it that way. We're supposed to be people of prayer and action. That's the point of all this stuff about intercession. So how different would the world be if the wider perception of Christians was that we are people of action? How different would things be if that was the first thing that came to people's minds? Wait a minute. Those are the people who display the man Jesus to the world. They act. And I'm not saying that we don't act, right? We have a group of action-oriented people here. But this is a reminder. This is to set it before us again to be action-oriented. This is why I have such a strong affinity for the Jesuits. Check this out. So this is a quote from a book that I found a while back about the Jesuits called Contemplatives in Action, because I believe that that's what we're called to be. It says, Jesuits were not designed to live apart from the world, but rather to find God in the world, indeed, in their apostolic activities in the world. So stop right there and check that out. Are you thinking of your day-to-day as your apostolic activities? Are those your apostolic activities? So you either are or you're losing ground. I know that that's a strong statement, but you're either thinking of them as your apostolic activities or you're losing ground. We have talked about this before. Apostleship, was a, an apostle was a Roman military office. And so the job of the apostle was to make the conquered land look like Rome. They were supposed to go in and they were supposed to transform the aspects of society to make this place look like Rome. They were supposed to be influencers, to use a a modern term. And so the job of an apostle, our apostleship, is to make a conquered land look like heaven. So that's what I mean by your apostolic activities. Day to day, are we entering into our apostolic activities? Contemplatives in Action continues. It says they they were not to give themselves to long hours of prayer, as was the custom in all religious congregations, Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits, wrote nearly 7,000 letters during his 16 years as general superior of the Society of Jesus. And he did all of that 
while leading a congregation, ministering in his local context, writing the constitutions of the Society of Jesus, and nurturing a, a, quote, deeply mystical prayer life that resulted in the spiritual exercises of Ignatius, which have transformed a positive spirituality for hundreds of thousands of people over the years that followed Ignatius' death. Ignatius was um, a contemplative in action. And so my point is that if Christians don't take, if, if Christians did take the initiative to get active in the community and truly listen both to the Holy Spirit and to their neighbors regarding what's to be done, we would be much more effective apostles. So when the culture is saying things back to us that we don't like to hear, like we don't want your thoughts and prayers, are we going to be able to remove the blinders of offense and say, God, what are you saying to us through this? Or are we going to stay offended and stay closed off and get insular and only listen to the people in our camp instead of listening to what's going on and then saying, God, what's your interpretation? If our mission is to disciple an ecclesia of passionate lovers of Jesus who will do the works that he did to advance the kingdom of God and the culture of heaven and the Oxford community, this is what we have to be about. This is what we have to be about. The mission of Jesus was healing, but it wasn't just healing. He healed many, and the prophets alluded to the fact that the Jewish Messiah would be a healer. They said that. However, as I read the scriptures, there's a thing that stands out to me in, this, in, this prophetic, in these prophetic visions of the Messiah that the church doesn't talk about enough because we think of it as too far left or we think of it as something that, you know, we just can't go there, that's, you know, for, for somebody else, whatever. But this is our assignment and we need to take it back. And that's justice. I'm not talking to you about justice today because of what's going on in the world, although that's a factor. I've been talking to you, if you'll remember, I've been talking to you about justice for more than a year, right? We did a series on kingdom mercy for Advent. We've been talking about this, okay? This isn't just an impulse, This isn't just something that we said, okay, now we need to talk about this. This is something that we have been talking about. For the elephant in the room, we need to address it now. I don't know about you, but uh, when I'm having, when I'm about to have a conversation that's a little bit raw, uh, my hands sweat, and I get a little shaky, and my heart beats a little faster, and uh, it's, I don't think it's because I'm afraid. I think it's because my physiology understands how important the conversation is that we're about to have. We need to talk again about racism and racial prejudice. We have got to talk about it. We've got to talk about it in the church. We can't be afraid of it. We can't excuse ourselves from that conversation because frankly, this is a kingdom issue. It is not a political one. And we cannot let the culture co-opt this and take it away from us because it's our job. We've allowed the culture to claim this as their fight and we have taken a back seat. But justice is kingdom work. Justice isn't the culture's work. Justice is kingdom work. And so I was listening to one of my favorite people in the kingdom last night, Tim Keller. If any of you are familiar with Tim Keller, powerful guy. He's wrote numerous um, apologetics books, and, and he's a powerful teacher. And he's just had a great influence, I believe, on, on my generation, on a couple generations before me. And I think he will have great influence on the generation that's coming after me. And um, he was making the point that true justice work belongs to us. We are the ones with an actual moral impetus to do this work. We are. Uh, You know, it, it belongs to the church. How do you determine whether something is right or wrong? Right? How do you determine that? We have the measuring stick of Jesus. But if you're a moral relativist, um, you are going to tie yourself in a pretzel trying to determine the grounds for doing justice work because you have no measuring stick. And so you can't say, I'm going to do whatever is right for me and also tell other people that they're living unjust lives because that is deeply incoherent. That is deeply incoherent. Justice is our job because we are the ones who have the measuring stick. And for that reason, I'm so angry and I'm so sad when I look at the church and I see a group of people unable to face this 
and have an appropriate unified response. And I've been quiet about this for the last several weeks because I'm so upset by that. I'm so upset by the fact that the church can't claim this job that belongs to us and do it the way that Jesus would have us do it. And I do not want Oxford Vineyard to be among that number. I don't want that. This isn't, this isn't an attempt to jump in with the culture. This isn't an attempt at a watered-down gospel. This, I implore you, we must, we must take up our assignment to do kingdom justice because it belongs to us. It does not belong to the culture, and we can't, we can't let them lead. We have to lead. As Jesus lovers, we cannot afford to violate people and we cannot afford to turn a blind eye toward people who violate people. Some other people get to make other things the primary issue. Some other people, not Jesus followers. People who are not Christians, who are, they're the ones who are allowed because of the fact that they are not holding themselves to the measuring stick of Jesus to make other things the primary issue. They're the ones that are allowed to say, I hear you, but what about riots? Or I hear you, but Martin Luther King said this. Or I hear you, but what about the police? Or I hear you, but what about the crimes that they committed before that they were, they were apprehended? Or I hear you, but what if they just followed the law? Or I hear you, but what about changing the name of Aunt Jemima's maple syrup? We don't get to do that. We don't have permission to make other things the primary issue over loving people. That's not the way that Jesus does it. We don't get to ask questions first because we are Jesus-loving people. Jesus did not first ask questions about the tax collectors or the prostitutes or the religious people or the murderers or the sick people or the poor people or the naked people or the oppressed before he entered in with them. He didn't get to do that. Jesus wasn't afraid of being seen differently by those around him because of his associations. And if he was, we would be in deep. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and they thought that the Samaritans represented the rejection of everything the Jews held dear. They worshiped somewhere that was not Jerusalem. They made sacrifices in ways that the Jews did not approve, right? They were not the people of God, according to the Jews. Even so, Jesus was not afraid that the religious people would see him standing for the value of the life of the Samaritan woman and take it the wrong way. He was not afraid of that. He didn't care. We talk about 2 Chronicles 7 all the time, literally all the time. Most of you could probably say it with me. In fact, if you can, say it with me. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Look at how many of you know that. Good Bible work, okay? Well, if the church knows that one so well, if we know that one so well, why isn't it working? We're not seeing it. It's not happening. Because we've been beating that one over the head since the 50s in America. We have. You go back, and that has been, you know, on the, it's been on the letterhead. It has been in the sermons. It's been, that's what we talk about. And there's nothing wrong with that verse. That's not what I'm saying, okay? I'm not saying that we're taking it out of context. It's in context. That's right. We are supposed to believe that. But I want to continue, and I want to read to you my favorite verse about fasting. So Isaiah 58 says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. This is good, right? This is good stuff. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? That's, why I ju- that's what I just said, right? We've been humbling ourselves. We've been praying. We've been seeking his face. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast 
only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Keep in mind, Isaiah is writing this to us. He's not writing this to Israel thousands of years ago. He's writing this to the people who will love the servant. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. This is the picture of what happens when we humble ourselves and pray. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? The fast for us is to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. The craziest thing to me about this passage is that it is prophetic instruction to the future people who will serve the servant Jesus. That's the purpose. And so once again, I am not making a political statement. I'm making a kingdom statement right now. There's nothing political about loving black people in America. And if my saying this right now provokes you to political thought, then I would suggest that you rewire that, that avenue because this isn't political. This is not a political thing. I'm not a political person. People who know me know that. I don't like either side, but I love them and I pray for them. Where people are voicing that they are oppressed, it's our job to listen and respond like Jesus. And that means enter in first and ask questions later. We have to do the hard work of listening. And as followers of Jesus, we don't get to ask questions first. We love people first, we ask questions later. And if you're saying to yourself right now, that sounds like a liberal gospel, or that sounds like cheap grace, well, guess what? That is exactly what Jesus did for you. That's what he did for you. He came and found you, he came and found me, and entered in with me before he started dealing with my stuff. Josh, he came and found you first. Bill, he came and found you first before he started dealing with your stuff. Pam, he came and found you first before he started dealing with your stuff. How many of us would be in this room if he didn't come and find us and then start dealing with our stuff? I would say probably none of us. He came and found us, and then he started dealing with our stuff. The kind of prayer and fasting that the world needs from us today is not the kind where we consciously or unconsciously are trying to convince God to do something on our behalf. The world needs from the church, what the world needs from the church today is for us to show up and stop excusing ourselves from the conversation when it gets complicated. And so my goal this morning is just to submit this to you again. It's not to speak harshly of anyone. Because I love you all, and I hope that you know how much I love you all. And it's not to call anyone out, and it's not to advance my agenda. It's to set it before us one more time, to bring it to the forefront, because it's not done, and it won't be for a long time. And, and the thing that I admire the most in my life, the thing that I look for in people that I follow, is long obedience in the same direction. And I am personally, I want to set myself on that with regards to justice in the kingdom. I love that. I love the heart of Jesus for people. That's why I'm in it. That's why I got in it to begin with. And I tried to make some action steps for the end of this talk 
because I wanted to leave you with something to do about it. Because on our staff, we talk about on-ramps and we talk about challenges and we talk about this stuff. And, and I'm, I just gotta tell you, every time I started to write those steps down, they were mine, they weren't God's. And so I'm not giving you action steps. I'm not giving you action steps. I'm willing to share my, my action steps with you over coffee, but I didn't think that they were for the whole room. You know, I, the one thing that I can give you is to seek the Holy Spirit for guidance because the most helpful thing for me has been listening to people who know more about this than I do and, and Jesus has led me to them. Jesus has led me to them. Last week, Putty Putman said this. This was a quote that I pulled from his sermon because I thought it was so powerful. He said, we can be blind to the things that we might trust in because we've never had to not have them. And I really appreciate that perspective because it takes into account the different ways that different people experience the world differently, right? I've never had to worry about not having a bed to sleep in. And I've never had to worry about my next meal. And I've never had to worry about affording medication. And I've never had to worry about any of those things. And so, you know, we would do well to realize that we can be blind to the things that we might trust in because we've never had to not have them. And the final point that I want to make is this. I know I'm going a little long, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up. I said I wasn't going to give you any action steps, but I lied. I repent. Um, we in the church have got to stock, stop talking about color blindness. We've got to stop talking about color blindness. And the only reason that I bring this up right now is because I think it's fundamentally biblical. I think it's a fundamentally biblical point. Um, we see color because God sees color, and to say that we are colorblind is fundamentally unbiblical. And so if you've said that, I'm not calling you out. I'm just, I'm just trying to give you some, some direction. Because in Revelation 22, when the whole book is over, when we get to the very end of the whole thing, in the last chapter of Revelation, there's, we see something interesting happen. It says that the leaves of the tree of life are healing to the nations. In the very end, the leaves of the tree of life are healing to the nations. And the Greek word for nations there is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 28 when he says to make disciples of all nations. And it's not talking about geopolitical boundaries. It is not talking about city-states. The Greek word is ethnos, ethnic groups. In Revelation 22, race and ethnicity are maintained. God sees color. He sees culture. And so we can't be people who talk about being colorblind. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 makes a really bold claim uh, that he has become all things to all people so that some of them might be saved. So what he's, what's, what's he saying? He's saying like, you know, when I'm with people under the law, when I'm with Jewish people, I'm Jewish. And when I'm with people who are, uh, you know, when I'm with Gentiles, I'm a Gentile. And I'm, when I'm with the weak, right, I relate to them as, as being weak. And for some reason, he doesn't say anything about relating to the strong, but... We're not going to go there. Um, the point is that, you know, we've got to have a relevant gospel, not in such a way that it detracts from what's at the center of it, the cross and the resurrection, because that's, that's our rock, but in such a way that we can be heard by all kinds of people and understand, like Jesus, what it means to enter into the suffering of the people around us. And so I just submit this to you and ask you to sit with it and please, talk with me. We need to have this conversation. So let me pray. Jesus, I just thank you for your goodness. And I thank you for meeting me before convicting me of my righteousness. I thank you for meeting me before you dealt with my stuff. I thank you that you've done the same thing for people in this room. And right now, Jesus, I just ask that if someone in here hasn't met you yet that you would meet them this morning and that they would know that you're willing to enter in you're willing to come close before you deal with their stuff we just welcome you Holy Spirit we say come Holy Spirit we need you to lead us we need you to guide us we love you in Jesus name Amen